Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts, Len Casper, alongside Jim Deshaies. You know us as the Cubs television tandem. You might be able to hear the Wrigley Field organ in the background as we are recording this intro from high atop Wrigley Field in the uh, home TV booth. And uh, J.D., due to... A very busy week, including five games in three days with the Cardinals. We're going to do a little best of this week. Yeah, a great idea. It's been a lot of fun um, doing the podcast so far. I think we've had a great group of guests, a varied group, um, you know, from uh, on-the-field guys to uh, ex-players, Hall of Famers, entertainers, uh, and they all obviously are all linked to the Cubs in, in some way or another. And uh, I think people are really going to enjoy this best of show. Before we get into that, We've experienced the universal DH, uh, runner at second base to start every half inning in extras, and now the seven-inning double header. Uh, your thoughts on all three? Although I already know you hate the DH. <laughs> I do hate the DH, uh, but I'm you know I'm, I'm learning to to live with it. Uh, I, I hope it goes away. My guess is it won't. Um, the man on second, I, I didn't think I was going to buy into it, but I think it le- uh, adds a level of urgency in extra innings that is very interesting. It's kind of like playoff hockey or overtime hockey, rather. Um, you know, it, so I, I'm, I'm all in on that, and we experienced a seven-inning doubleheader yesterday, and I got to tell you, I like that, too. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind that one sticking around. Uh, I think the players enjoy it. Uh, same kind of vibe, you know, it creates a little urgency earlier in the ball game. Uh, and, and I think it, obviously it's going to help save the, the, the pitchers a little bit. That's why they put it in uh, for this uh, COVID season. Um, but, but going forward, uh, I would be in favor of uh, staying in play. My guess is it won't, uh, but I'd be in favor of it. The Cardinals will be at a disadvantage in that they have to play so many games in, you know, what is it, 53 games in 44 days to finish the season. But I'm sensing a, a vibe around the league that some teams don't like the fact that if, if they play nine doubleheaders, you do the math, that's 36 fewer innings that their pitchers have to cover. Yeah, but, I, you know, it's still it's a, it's a hardship. I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't share that sentiment. I think the Cardinals are up against it. Matt Carpenter said as much. He was quoted recently saying, frankly, if we make the postseason, it'll be a miracle. Um, if you look at the history of doubleheaders, a high percentage of them are split. And if you're a really good club, those are probably a series that maybe you win two out of three, end up winning two out of four. Um, so I don't think they're catching a real break. All right, so coming up on the podcast, you're going to hear some great stories from Cubs left-hander John Lester, from one of the great actors of this generation, and really a stand-up comedian, a writer, producer, director, Bob Odenkirk, and Hall of Famer Billy Williams. Enjoy the best of Open Concessions, presented by Toyota. Our first ever guest is John Lester. I think a fitting first guest for this show. He's 36 years old. He is in his sixth and final year of one of the best contracts the Cubs have ever negotiated with a free agent. Five-time All-Star, three-time World Series winner. He overcame a battle with cancer early in his career to become one of the most reliable aces in the game. An opening day starter eight times, including four with the Chicago Cubs. J.D., he's pretty much accomplished everything you can uh, achieve at this level as a big league starter. 
Yeah, it's been a remarkable career, uh, marked by consistency, durability. Just about every year he's been um, uh, above average, if not well above average, uh, you know, just in terms of his, his workload, the quality of work he gives you. Uh, you know, it was obviously an outstanding acquisition uh, by the Cubs, and he's just, uh, you know, one of our favorite left-handers. He's a real uh, thoughtful guy and such a great competitor. Every time it's John Lester's turn to pitch, uh, I get excited to watch him go out there and fight. I want to get into your your upbringing a little bit. Uh, you're from uh, Washington State, Seattle area, Puyallup. Would would you call that your hometown? Yeah, I mean that's my hometown. Yes, born and born and raised there. Uh, the sports you were interested in. Baseball, obviously, on the list. Uh, football, soccer, basketball. What what were the sports that you really liked to play? Uh, th- those four. I didn't play football till I got to high school. Uh, I, I, I was big into soccer growing up. That was it, baseball and soccer. I started at the same time and uh, just kind of played them throughout my life. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed playing soccer. Uh, my, my favorite out of all of them was basketball. To be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I started playing that in sixth, fifth, sixth grade. And that one, that one was always, always the most fun for me. I, I loved playing basketball. I loved the fast pace. I loved the up and down. Uh, I felt like I was halfway decent at it. Um, I played two years of that in, in high school. Uh, I couldn't play my sophomore year. I, I tore my knee up playing football, which ended my football uh, career. And then play, I played basketball my junior year. So I played baseball for, basketball twice and then football twice. So, um, soccer got put on the back burner cause, cause baseball and soccer for, for the guys in my high school were the same time. So obviously I wasn't going to take soccer over baseball. How, how tall were you in high school? Had you already gotten up over I six was, feet? Because you know, you're not a typical soccer player in terms of your height. Yeah. Well, you, you, you got to remember Lena back, back in the day, I was about probably 60 pounds lighter than I am now. And uh, could actually move a little bit, so I, I I was tall, but I could I could move and uh, was was fairly athletic um, back then. But uh, I was I was like six two ish when I got to high school, and then I finished growing. I think my junior year I ended up being I'm like six three and three quarters. It just they kind of rounded up to six four. I see I see a fifteen to eighteen foot jumper from the baseline, some smooth moves, kind of a shooting forward. Was that was that your game? Yeah, I, w- I was. Uh, I, I I hate having my back to the to the basket, but I played kind of that swing, that three four position. Um, you know, I I was terrible at defense. I was a cherry picker. Uh, so our school was known for man to man for the longest time, and then when I got to to varsity my junior year, we ended up changing to a one three one zone defense because I just I was terrible at man to man. So uh, I played the point uh, up top on on uh on the zone and would just go for steals and and uh it was a terrible rebounder but you know i i knew my strengths and, and i i kind of stuck to those and um you know I, like i said it was it was fun it's probably my favorite it's interesting that you played multiple sports not everybody does that these days do you think it was important for you to to do things other than baseball even though that became your calling Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Because I, I remember my senior year, um, I I I played. I usually so my junior year, uh, I played an intramural. I think it was intramural volleyball going into basketball, 
and had a blast. And then my senior year, you know, obviously you start hearing all the stuff about draft and college and all this stuff. And, um, I did, I wanted to do the same thing. So I, I did, I did that. And then basketball, you know, we started having these, these, uh, volunteer workouts and I started doing those and it gets like a week before, uh, tryouts are supposed to start. And, you know, I'm all fired up and I told the coach that I was playing and, uh, we, we get down to a couple of days before tryouts and, you know, I have to have a sit down chat with, with my dad and, um, you know, just some, some other people with kind of advising me to, to not play basketball my senior year, just because I'd already been hurt. And, you know, that was tough for me because it, 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 it prolonged kind of my off season. So I didn't know what to do for the next however many months until we got to baseball season. So all I did was play baseball. I pitched and through and you know did all the stuff stuff that I've never done before and we get into the season and I have like two or three really good starts and then I go through like a just straight dead arm period because I had thrown so much the prior months that I was kind of like fatiguing out almost um so it kind of hurt me a little it hurt me in the long run and so that's why I always tell kids man like if you enjoy sports if you enjoy other sports, play them because it's only going to make you a better athlete. You know, you're not continuously doing the same motion, the same direction your entire life. You know, you have to have some balance. Um, you know, basketball is going to help you. It's going to help your endurance. It's going to help your athletic ability. Football, the same thing. Soccer, same thing. So I think what we've, as a society, we've kind of come to is, these coaches believe that a nine and 10 year old has a chance at making a college team at nine or 10 years old. And that's not the case. You know, we, we, we have to allow our nine and 10 year olds to be nine and 10 year olds and grow up and figure out what they like and the specialization and these kids playing, you know, I, I've, I've met some kids around here, especially down here in the South, man, like in Atlanta, these kids are, are nuts about baseball and they're playing 80, 90, hundred game seasons at 10 years old. You know, I played 20 high school baseball games and then probably 60 summer summer ball games when I was a kid. Obviously, Washington wouldn't allow you to play more games, but that's even with some travel tournaments. And I just feel like if I would have played that 100-game season as a, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old, I probably wouldn't have wanted to pursue baseball that much, you know, going forward. It just might have burnt me out. I don't know, but... I just feel like kids now are burnt out. They're getting hurt earlier. Um, yeah, I didn't know what Tommy John was until I got to pro ball. Um, you know, let alone any of these other arm injuries that, that you've got 12 year olds getting Tommy John now. So it's just crazy. I, I, I feel like just let kids be kids and, um, you know, scouts from colleges and, and pro scouts. If, if you're good enough, they'll find you. Uh, if they found me at, the little Catholic or Jesuit high school I went to, then they'll find, they'll find anybody. So John, it sounds like you spent a lot of time with a, a ball in your hand or a ball on your foot or a ball somewhere when you weren't um, pursuing athletics. What, what, what else was young John Lester up to? Were you playing clarinet in the band as well? Or what, what, what else were you into back uh, in the day? I did. I did as a kid early on, I did, I did buy into the saxophone, uh, in the band that lasted all of about four or five months. And then that, that got put up. Um, music is not, music is like, uh, is like kryptonite to me. I run from 
from trying to play. I tried to pick up a guitar a few times and play and it just never works out. Um, but no, it was, it was mainly sports. Uh, JD was mainly sports and, um, uh, you know, I, I love to fish. I grew up fishing. So anytime that we had summers that, that there's summer days that, that I didn't have to have practice or, or a game or whatnot, me and my, my family, we'd go fishing. Um, but that's it. Outdoors, riding bikes, being a kid, you know, I mean, I lived on a cul-de-sac, which was awesome, uh, for me. And, and I had some kids on my, my block that we'd go play home run derby or we'd play, you know, three on three or, you know, ride bikes up and down the street or, you know, whatever it was, we were, we were outside all the time. So you grew up in the Northwest. You, uh, started your big league career in the Northeast. You live in the Southeast <laughs> and you've spent the last six years in the Midwest. So you have a really, I think, good perspective on just what people are like in different parts of the country. Could you, I guess, articulate what the what the vibe is for someone from the Northwest and how you had to adjust? I would imagine the biggest adjustment was, was Boston. Uh, and we'll talk about your career as a Red Sox later, but um, it's different in different places, right? In terms of just how people treat people. Yeah, 100%. You know, I mean, I think, um, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't spend a lot of time in Seattle. You know, I think Seattle is kind of more or less now turned into like the hustle and bustle uh, kind of Northeast feeling, uh, you know, as far as the traffic and, and people moving in and out of there. Uh, it's got kind of more of that free spirited people um, that live up there. Uh, where I'm from was more rural. When I grew up was more rural. Uh, obviously it's, it's grown up now. A lot of the people from Boeing, uh, the Boeing plant that was there moved there. We have a lot of, uh, military that used to live there or still live there from, uh, McCord Air Force Base. Um, so I, I, I got that obviously, um, like you said, I, I've lived in the Southeast since 2007, you know, the South is the South, man. It's laid back. It's chill. Kind of go at your own pace. Um, you know, out, it's it's a big outdoors, uh, fishing, hunting, uh, you know, riding in your Jeep, you know, stuff like that. Um, the Northeast, you know, it's the Northeast. I think people pretty much know that. It, it's 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 crazy, you know, um, more in your face, more brash, more, um, you know, you definitely know what people think of you up there. Um, you know, and I think the Midwest is kind of a combo of everything. You know, I think... You know, we, 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 we play on the, the slower side, I think, of Chicago. You know, you get downtown Chicago, it's the hustle and bustle, the, you know, kind of that the big city feeling. But then you've got those good, you know, kind of rooted Midwestern people that grew up farming, um, you know, the blue collar, uh, working for, for what they got type. And, uh, you know, I, I've been blessed to be able to play and experience different, different parts of this country, um, and, and really kind of break down, you know, United States and, and figure out where I want to live. And, 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 um, you know, I, I think I've, I've learned a lot from the, the few cities I've, I've got to play in. John, you mentioned earlier, um, that you would prefer to finish your career here in Chicago with the Cubs. Uh, have you given any thought to, to going back home to ultimately pitching up in Seattle? No, no, I don't, I don't, no, I don't, part I don't, of that. yeah, no, I just, 
maybe, you know, you never know. I don't want to close any doors when it comes to anything. Um, you know, I, I think for me, with the way my career has been, I've, I've been fortunate to play for two very, very, well, really three storied franchises. You know, Oakland has, has a lot of history there uh, as well and some championships there. Um, but, for you know, obviously I'm, a lot of people forget that I went there for two months. But I think, you know, for me, it, it, it needs to be I, – I, I would really like to just stay here and, and finish it out and not have, you know, any more change and, um, you know, really just kind of think about the two jerseys. You know, obviously the, the A's was a big part of – a small part of my, of my career, and I learned a lot when I was there and uh, met a lot of great people, played for a great manager. Um, but, you know, I think that the two jerseys are, are kind of significant for me and, and I would like to, you know, obviously kind of finish that out and, and maybe, maybe hopefully bring another world series here. So second round pick of the Red Sox, 2002, but 2006, uh, just on the outside looking in and getting to know you. Uh, pretty well. That that was the benchmark year of your life in, in every way, right? You made your major league debut, uh, the cancer diagnosis. As you look back on that time with a lot of distance now, um, what memories hit you more quickly than others, whether they're positive or negative? Uh, I mean, I think a lot. I mean, if you're talking about just that year specifically, um, I mean, there's a lot of memories in there as far as people. You know, I think the people that I got to meet uh, and and bring into my life that I owe <laughs> I owe a great debt of gratitude to. Um, I mean, the list is too long to even to even go through. But our, our team doctor there in Boston, Doctor Ronan, was was gosh, I mean, just unbelievable. Um, doctor Friedman in Boston, my oncologist that that I. I dealt with for a little bit and then all the nurses there, um, Dr. Ollie press in, in, uh, at Fred Hutch in, uh, in Seattle, uh, is not only an unbelievable person for me personally, but for a lot of people, I mean, he's, he led, um, a lot of research at, at that hospital, uh, for lymphomas especially. And, um, you know, I don't think, a lot of people that have lymph or have had lymphoma have lymphoma uh, would be here uh, if it wasn't for for him. He did a lot of unbelievable research that led to a lot of uh, it, it led to the the cure of mine, uh, the, the the certain type of, of treatment they were doing and in different drugs and in different ways. So the list goes on and on. And then you know obviously the baseball side of it, you know I've having the uh, the childhood dream come true of of you know, making it to the big leagues and, and doing okay and, and kind of holding your own and then, you know, kind of having the rug swept out from underneath your feet and having a lot of unknowns after that. Um, but, you know, th- those are a few memories early on for me. And I know you've raised, uh, you and Farah have raised a ton of money uh, through uh, Never Quit. And uh, as I've told you, every time I have a vote for the uh, Roberto Clemente Award, I put I put your name front and center. Um, and, and, I, I want I want to ask you about your relationship with Anthony Rizzo because you were one of those people for him, uh, and and I think there are some Cub fans who may not actually remember or realize uh, that that your relationship with Anthony goes back 
to your your Red Sox days. Do, do you remember the conversations you had with him when he uh, went through what he did and and encouraging him and letting him know that he was going to be okay? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that day. You know, I mean, I remember uh, a- Anthony likes to remind me that it was like three days, I think, before I ended up throwing my no hitter. So he he still claims that <laughs> the no hitter was for him. Uh, I say otherwise, but um, you know, that's just my opinion. But no, I, I I give him a hard time about it. But no, I mean, I remember Tito calling me in uh, when Anthony his his mom and his dad, and I think his brother was there. I'm pretty sure his brother was there. Uh, came downstairs and he called me in the office. He said, "Hey, we got this kid in in uh, low A. You know, pretty big, pretty big prospect kid that uh, just got diagnosed. Had his first treatment up here in Boston. And and you know, w- would you mind just sitting down and talking to him? His family's got some questions. I said, "Yeah, no problem. Uh, I think we we're in a rain delay, and we were standing in the hall. And I mean, H- Anthony was, gosh, he was white as a ghost, man. Like you could just tell that he had just gone through treatment and 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 wasn't feeling." a hundred percent. And, um, but mainly it was, it was just, it was talking to his dad and talking to his mom. I mean, I, I know for me, when, when I went through it, it was my parents asking more questions than me and Riz, you know, asked a few questions like, you know, when can I start working out or how did you feel when you started working out and you know, what'd you do here and what'd you do there? And, um, you know, I know one thing and, and I don't, I don't brag about a lot of things, but one thing that I do love that he says, and, and any time he he speaks on his in his foundation, which is unbelievable, and or he speaks to kids, he he kind of steals some words from me, but I love it. And he tells everybody, you know, the best thing you can do is not sit there and sulk or woes me or wise me or all this other stuff is get out and still be a person as best you can. I mean, there's days where you know you can't physically do things or you don't you feel nauseous or whatnot. You know, obviously those aren't the days, but the days that you feel good, I told Reyes, go hit you know, as much as you, as much as you feel good. You know, if it's 10 minutes, it's 10 minutes. You got, you took your mind off of what's going on for 10 minutes. Just live your life. And I just, I remember when I was going through my deal, the, the going to a river and fishing, it was like that, that took my mind off of everything. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was some stuff that really stuck with him. Um, and then he, and then he faints. Uh, he, he falls over in the hallway. So we, we pick him up, we get him into Tito's office and, you know, we sat there and talked for probably about another hour, hour and a half to, and I talked to his dad and his mom and, um, you know, it was just, it was obviously concerned parents and, um, you know, all Tony can, all Tony cared about was, you know, when, when can I start playing baseball again, which, you know, you have that kind of the end goal, uh, at the, at the, or that light at the end of the tunnel, you know, you, you, you have something to strive for. So, you know, I think that that helped me. It helped him. Um, but yeah, man, just this young, innocent kid that, you know, same thing, just had had that rug, you know, pulled out from underneath him. And, uh, you know, I'm just I'm thankful that it worked out for him. And and obviously now look at him. He's he's doing incredible things on and off the field. So as we move ahead, uh you mentioned your your time with the Red Sox. Uh, I love Jeff Passan's book, The Arm, and my favorite chapter was uh, Your Free Agency. And I'm curious to know, and this is the unanswerable question, but I'm going to get meta on you here. If John Lester were still with the Red Sox and you had spent your entire career there, as opposed to what actually occurred, uh, you go to Oakland and then you sign with the Cubs. 
Would you be a different person than you are today? How did the changes getting traded and then picking a team change you as a person, if at all? Uh, I don't know about a, about a person. I think it changes you, changes your mentality. You know, I think when you when when I was going through the the free agency stuff, when, when I've you know I was drafted by him, raised by him, brought up to the big leagues by him. You know, I had fa- I had family. You know, like Tito was family to me. He took care of me. John Henry was more than beyond gracious with uh, helping us. My family get you know, from Seattle to Boston, the treatments, you know, the way they, they, they took care of me at a young age and then kind of groomed me up through to free agency. You know, I, when you get to that point, you, you start questioning, well, I don't know if I can play for another team. You know, you start wondering, well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can perform over there. I don't know what I can do. Um, the best thing that, I say now, looking back on it, the best thing that ever happened to me was being traded. Um, because I think if that season plays out, I go to free agency and I sign with the Cubs, I not only have the unknown of playing for Chicago and, and the city and, and the Cubs and you know new team, teammates, manager, all this stuff, I don't know if I can play here. I don't know. I've never played for anybody but Boston. So them trading me to Oakland, it's like, Oh, okay. Now I've got, now I go to a whole nother coast. Um, you know, you're playing a whole different division, a whole different deal. And it's like, oh yeah, I can do this. Like it, I'm, I'm still getting big league hitter out, hitters out, you know, like we had, we had just faced the Royals in Boston, maybe two or three re- weeks before I get traded and I get traded out there and I'm facing the Royals. So it's like, oh, okay. It, it, it almost was like, meant to be you know what I mean like it it was just like a a sign to me that oh I just face these guys I know I've already got a game plan I know what I'm doing and it I just put a different uniform on so leading into free agency it's like I know they put me in one of the worst situations that they could put me in as far as sending me all the way to Oakland uh you know I gotta get my family out there I gotta do all this stuff and find a place to live. You know, we had a house in Boston. We had all this comfortability in the, in Boston. And um, to get out there, you're like, oh, God, it's like you get hit in the face. And then all of a sudden, I got to get try to get people out in a pennant race. So I think the best thing that ever happened to me, that, I mean, that made me grow up in a, in a, in a mental way uh, as far as, okay, I know if I go to a different team, it's just baseball. And it's a mental hurdle that you almost need to kind of get over. And that, for me, that was the best thing that happened to me, uh, looking back on how everything has worked out. It's pretty amazing when you think about the, the mind of an athlete. At such a high level, you had so much success in Boston. Uh, but here you were, you still had those doubts where you weren't sure you know, how you would perform elsewhere. And obviously, it, uh, <laughs> it's proven that you could pitch anywhere. Uh, my question is, so the decision to, you know, to come to the Cubs, the free agency process, um, Kind of take us through that, you know, what other clubs you were considering, uh, were there sleepless nights? So what was that whole situation like? Uh, it, it wasn't, there was no, there was no sleepless nights, but it was stressful. Um, you know, at first it was cool, you know, like the, the, the Red Sox come down, they, they fly in and it's the, the whole crew and, um, you know, they're, they're like, they're trying to ooh and ah you and it, 
uh, about the organization. I'm like, guys, you can't surprise me with anything. I mean, I know what <laughs> I've been here for how long. Um, but no, it was, it was cool to go through that. And then um, I want to say we went to Chicago next. Can't remember if San Francisco came in to the house as well. Buster Posey drove up. He was, he was living in, I think, Bainbridge, which is a couple hour drive from here. And he came up and, and sat down with Boach and um, I'm trying to think of uh, the, the uh, Evans, uh, the Bobby, Bobby Evans, Bobby Evans. And yep. then one other guy, I can't remember anyway. And then one of the owners. Um, so it was just cool to like, for me, that was cool. Like to see, what the owners had to say, what the, the general managers and the vice presidents and then the manager. And then now you got Buster Posey sitting here, you know, before that, you know, he, I was, I had only won uh, two world series. He's won three. So you're kind of like, oh, okay, like this is, um, this is cool, you know? So to, 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 to have that and then to fly to Chicago, it was a, God almighty, it was a rough day for us as far as travel, getting up there, um, we finally get there. It messes up all the plans for for uh, Mr. Ricketts and, and him being there. He had a recital for his daughter he had to be at, but he comes to dinner after. Um, and that was just awesome to be a part of that, like to see, you know, the Wrigley plans, the, uh, the, the, the baseball ops plans, the uh, just everything involved with what was going on. And I, I'm not sure if Joe was hired by then when I did that, when I, when I did this. So, um, you know, and okay, so you do do that. And these are kind of the three main teams that are involved. There's some other teams that are, that are somewhat involved. And, and I met, I met with the Braves here in Atlanta, um, with John Hart. Um, and did, then, did you go into it with a team in mind? Did you have any preconceived notions of where you well, might end up? I think for, for me, there was a few teams. There was, there was always, you know, I think when you play for Boston, there's always kind of that uh, allure of, you know, what about the Yankees? You know, mm. like, what are they going to do? You know, what, what, what's going to happen here? And, and one, of, one of my all-time idols is, is CC Sabathia, and I'm like, gosh, it would be awesome to play, you know, a pitch with CC And, um, you know, but then you kind of have to throw some cold water on your face. Like, oh, I can't do that. I played for the Red Sox for so long or, you know, whatever. But – Going into it, I think it was, you know, it, you always kind of lean towards the bigger market teams. Uh, obviously, the Braves were here, were, were for me a, a choice just being here. Um, the Red Sox, obviously. Chicago had already been kind of on my radar. Um, you know, I, I, remember, I remember asking a few people, I won't name names, but I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I remember asking people about Chicago along, the, along that year. Um, uh, after, especially after I got traded, uh, the giants for me were always kind of a, uh, a sleeper and for them to be involved was, was really pulled at me just because of their winning, you know, just mm -hmm. the, the guys, I mean, it's all a lot of homegrown guys, um, you know, awesome ballpark when you're there. Um, you know, just a lot of cool things that kind of draw you, draw you to them. The Rangers were always kind of a, kind of an interesting thing for me i just i've always liked texas i've always liked that stadium and now they're getting a new one but uh so there's a few there's a few not to not to go too in depth with all this stuff but you know you really don't know until people start making phone calls and 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 you know your whole 
your whole list changes if that team that you really like doesn't call. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate to have, um, I, I was, I was very fortunate to have, have awesome teams, uh, awesome franchises, let's say that, uh, interested. And, and I felt very honored that, uh, that these teams were, were after me. Um, you know, obviously it came down the giants after playing out there, just kind of realized we didn't like being out there on the West coast. Um, but you know, their, their offer was, was very substantial. Um, and then, you know, it really came down to, I mean, I'll be completely honest with you guys. It came down, it, it always was between the Cubs and the Red Sox and, and obviously you know how that, that whole thing worked out. So. Dear adventurers, enjoy a summer of excitement with Toyota. Keep it wild in the rugged Forerunner. Take charge in the 2020 Camry with available all-wheel drive. Explore more and go farther in the stylish RAV4 or fuel-efficient RAV4 Hybrid. Or cruise with your crew in the roomy Highlander Hybrid with electric on-demand all-wheel drive. Soak it up, Toyota. Right now, get 1.9% APR for 60 months on a new 2020 RAV4 or RAV4 Hybrid. Visit your local Toyota dealer or toyota.com to learn more. Today's guest is Bob Odenkirk, actor, comedian, writer, director, producer, best known for playing Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad and later Jimmy McGill and Saul Goodman on Better Call Saul. Uh, J.D., we've had him uh, in the booth a few times to sing the stretch. He's kind of at the top of his game right now. He's been around a long time and uh, we get into some pretty deep stuff, but uh, uh, that's a name that resonates pretty well these days. Yeah, and he's just a, a delightful guy, and um, fun to get an opportunity to sit down and, and chat with Bob. And, and, and you're right; he's had a remarkable career. The evolution of his career, I find most interesting. Uh, you know, a kind of a comic uh, writer, sketch comic guy, and now uh, playing a serious dramatic role. Uh, he's appeared in a lot of uh, big time movies, uh, and uh, to go along with his television work, and just a very interesting man. I have in my hand a note. A card from you, mm. dated June 29th, 2009. And it says, Ooh. Dear Len, a handwritten note, thank you for a most memorable afternoon at Wrigley Field. My father would have been so proud of me to have achieved such an honor. My grandfather, however, was a Sox fan. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> uh, well, I, rem- I remember you and David coming to the ballpark, and uh, you've now sung the stretch multiple times uh, it's been great to have you and hopefully we have you a bunch more oh that would be a dream i uh yeah my uh, allegiance was initially my grandfather took us to see the socks at comiskey he grew up four blocks from old comiskey and uh we would go when harry Carey was still the announcer there and um I, we sat right under harry's booth and then uh, my grandfather lived in Oak Park, and he did start watching the Cubs in the even later years. So I, he was in the White Sox, always loved the White Sox, but I think the Cubs were pretty easy to watch uh, on WGN there for so long. And 
anyway, uh, and then I lived in Wrigleyville. I lived right down the street from Wrigley Field for when I first moved to Chicago. And I used to go to day games because if I wasn't working at uh, Cozy's Bike Shop right around the corner. And um, yeah, it was great. I love, uh, I love Wrigley Field. And uh, I love the Cubs, especially their current group of players. And as you look at how things have kind of gone, you, you mentioned this current group of players, and there are Cub fans everywhere. Do you notice even in Southern California, there, there are a lot of Cub fans there too? Yeah, there's tons of Cub fans in Los Angeles because, you know, this is a very – this town is filled with people from – who've come from somewhere else and many of them from the Midwest. It's understandable. I'm sitting outside right now. I don't know what the weather's like in Chicago, but it is crazy beautiful again today. Sorry, Chicagoans. I know you've had some cold weather. My mom and my sisters still live there. So believe me, I get the weather report. What's it like right now? Eh, it's kind of oh, cool no. and, and cloudy, but it snowed yesterday, Bob. It actually snowed. I know. That's Mother's insane. Day. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it That's is. That's insane. But you know, you... my brother Phil was born on April 1st in, uh, let's see, this would have been uh, like probably 70 or like around 69. And it was a snowstorm on April 1st, snowstorm. I remember watching my parents pull out the VW bug and it went spinning around in the street because my dad was hitting the gas so hard and trying to get to the hospital. And uh, and now it's May 10th, it, it snows on May 10th? What? <laughs> we had- It didn't stick, yeah. right? It, it just <laughs> melted, right? We had a game around Memorial Day, I think in 2016, it was like, wind chill of 35 i mean memorial day that's summer oh oh well <laughs> oh well yeah i don't know what can you do you can't be you all you can do is complain about it and that helps <laughs> <laughs> but i've been far more surprised at how thoughtful and cooperative people have been in this pandemic effort than uh than i have been disappointed i i am pleased and blown away at the number of people who are asking, what can I do to help? Uh, and how can I do this right? And what can I do to help? Because really you're protecting other people by wearing a mask, you know, because you won't spread it to maybe someone who's weaker than you or older than you. And it's just been amazing to see anyway. Yeah, well, we we can all be heroes by sitting on our couch and, and watching another season of Better Call Saul or whatever else we're we're you know jumping on on Netflix. I mean, it's you know it's not the ultimate sacrifice, but it's you know I know, but you're helping. It's not a bad way to listen, spend a pay. Yeah, listen, yeah, you're staying, staying my, out. My of neighbor, thing. my neighbor said to me, she is older and her husband is older with some complications, and she said, "I'm doing my part by staying out of the way." I'm going to not get sick and I'm not going to pass it on to somebody. And that's one of the things I'm going to do. Maybe the most important thing I'm going to do is not get in the way as people try to deal with this who need to. 
Speaking of which, I'd rather be sitting on my couch watching a Cubs game. And I, you know, I don't know. You guys would know this, and you've probably talked about it. Uh, but early on, somebody said, why don't they just play in the spring training parks, some shortened season, everybody stay in Arizona and Florida, and, you know, maybe be sequestered in a hotel. Uh, it's still a lot of people to put in a group, but is that not, why is that not? something that we could all do watch well, I think two two main reasons and jd can add to it if he wants i think the players don't want to be away from their families potentially for months yep. on end that's yep. number one right. and number two there's only one dome stadium in arizona so if you play in june and july it's 110 degrees oh boy i didn't think about that and it's worse it's 120 right some days yeah. It would have yeah, been, uh, right. you know, it would have been doable, I think, um, but but it probably would have been uh, kind of miserable. And, 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 you know, just today, uh, the owners have agreed to a plan that the commissioner floated out there to uh, play a season that would start in early July, play about 80 games, and we play in major league stadiums, um, empty stadiums. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it would be very heavy within our own division. So we'd play the same cast of characters a lot, Cardinals, Brewers, and Reds and Pirates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we'd mm-hmm. also play the American League Central. So that, that seems to be a doable plan if they can, you know, get over the, the hurdles of all the all the medical stuff, testing and, and whatnot. So we'll see where it goes. But I think there is the potential. Boy, I at hope. Point you'll be I got to say, as a fan, I hope they do that because – Look, I don't want to risk anybody else's health, but we all—I don't know—people. This is so unnatural what we're all doing right now, and I, rather than people explode in some kind of crazy behavior, uh, I'd rather we find ways to let some, you know, put our energy somewhere. And uh, if the players would do that and they could sort out how to do it, it would be the greatest thing to to put on the MLB app, which I have, I get every year and just watch a game every day. And I just, it'd be a wonderful and really meaningful thing. Um, so. They're going to try like heck to make, make it happen. And, you know, time is a little bit on their side. We, we still have a few weeks and maybe months before they have to make, you know, a final decision. So we're hopeful. And uh, I, yeah, I also think this team, I like these guys so much. Uh, and I wonder if a year goes by, what's going to happen. It's not going to be this group. Um, I mean, it changes every year, but it'll, it'll change a lot more, I think, in a year. Uh, but I don't know that much about trades and stuff, but it it's still a fairly close group that I recognize, you know that I know. I think you speak for a lot of fans. Yeah. This, this nucleus is not going to be together forever. Yeah. And I, you know, this is a funny thing, you know, the, the, the world series run was such a great thing that just rejuvenated people's belief in the possibility, (laughs) the possibility of winning. Uh, And so that was great. But then I started watching because on the when you're acting on a show like Better Call Saul, 
and we shoot a lot in the summer. We've shot a lot. Uh, last couple of seasons mostly have been shot in the summer, although this next season will start in September if we're okay, if we can sort out a way to do that. I'm not sure we can, but if we can, we'll start in September. But nothing better than a baseball game while you're shooting scenes because it moves slow <laughs> and we're shooting moves slow. So you're not missing too much. You can get back. You can get it on your phone now and you can, and it doesn't take you completely out of the scene. Like I can't read a book that has like a, I can't read like a fiction book, right? It's a whole nother story. I already have a fiction story in my head that I'm trying to commit to and believe in. But a baseball game is not that. And uh, it was just, a, it's been the greatest companion and uh, entertainment uh, for me for the last couple of years on Better Call Saul. And um, I miss it. And I miss, and you get to know these guys over time and their characters. And I love uh, Schwarber and I love Rizzo. Who can't, who doesn't? Chris Bryant. Um, all these guys, all of them, even the quiet ones like John Lester, <laughs> even the kind of stony faced ones, we don't give you a lot. Um, you just get to know them and it's a great thing. So we don't want to give away any spoilers for, for Saul, but um, one more season. Yeah. One more season. It'll be a extended season. Um, the, uh, you know, the guys who write it and the women, it's actually a female heavy writing staff, more, more f women than men, uh, which is pretty cool. And I think one of the reasons the, um, women on the, the w female characters on the show are so well written and so rich, um, but they have a lot of story they want to tell. And we usually do 10 episodes in a season, but they're planning for the final season to be 13. And uh, I can't wait to see what they write. I, I don't know a thing about what happens. Every year I sit down with Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, who created the show, and I sort of speak as a fan. And I say, here's what I wish you would do, or here's what I'd love to see. I always want fireworks. I always want Saul to get in a lot of trouble, like physical trouble. This last season, we did a, a whole episode that Vince Gilligan directed that we shot out in the middle of the desert, and it was brutal, just brutal. It was two and a half weeks hmm. of 110-degree heat, and you had to start at 5.30 a.m. I mean, you had to be ready to shoot at 5.30 a.m., so you had to get, a, get there at 4.30 and and then shoot until the sun went down and i just love that stuff i love when it's hard and and when the character is just getting the i don't know can i swear you, you can say whatever you want <laughs> when he's getting the shit kicked out of him is my favorite thing in in the whole show because i think he deserves it <laughs> <laughs> and because essentially this goes back to breaking bad and the first episode with saul he gets kidnapped and i don't think this is a spoiler alert because if you haven't seen breaking bad i've 
I can't help you. You can't find your remote, obviously. Um, uh, and he gets kidnapped and taken to the desert. And Walt and Jesse have a gun to his head. And I remember shooting that scene. It was 1.30 a.m. There was a giant, giant light on a crane, a massive crane, way, way, way up in the sky, like a, you know, a kind of a simulated moon light. And uh, and then the, the little Winnebago, which felt little in the middle of that desert, and then a grave that they had dug. And I'm on my knees, and they were holding the gun up to the back of my head. And then we have a long conversation. And, you know, we shot from probably midnight to 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And that kind of stuff, man, that's like, it's hard, but what an adventure it is to be, to get to be an actor who, and to get to do that in your life and make, make up that story and tell that kind of story. And it's just to say to yourself, this is my job. I imagine you guys have the same feeling sometimes where you go, I can't believe I get to do this. And every day isn't the same. Every day you don't feel that the whole time, but there are moments. And for me, those moments are often the ones that are strenuous, physical, crazy. And I love a fake gun being waved around. I'm, I don't know what that says about gun control or my second amendment stance, but I sure do love a fake gun being waved around by grown men. Yeah, who wouldn't? The, the, the desert, sure, the desert it scene. It makes me laugh. I guarantee you, when they say "cut," I start laughing right away. The the desert episode uh, on Saul this season made me uncomfortable. Uh, the blisters on your lips and the makeup was amazing. I assume that was makeup. It was. It was. They took good care of me. They did the best they could. I mean, it was brutal, but. All right, Bob uh, Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, have you ever had to drink your own urine in real life? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, I once wrote a comedy sketch. I wish we'd done it. Remember Bear Grylls? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know that show? So I wrote a sketch. It was like a show like that with a Bear Grylls guy. And as soon as he he's like out with a bunch of uh, he takes like neophytes people out into the desert to survive. It's like a little, you know, satire parody TV show. And as soon as they're out there, he goes, we should drink our urine. <laughs> I'm like, wait, we just got here. And he's immediately and it's the only thing he talks about is how we better drink our urine. Like, we've only been here an hour. Calm down. Anyway, uh, I do think it's funny. I did not drink my own urine. No, I mean, listen, I all acting is method acting. You're using your memories and experiences to pretend to be sad or angry or lonely or whatever the hell you're doing. But I don't need to drink urine to imagine that it doesn't taste so good. <laughs> it was just food coloring. Water. <laughs> Today's guest is Hall of Famer Billy Williams, one of our all-time favorites. Billy was the National League Rookie of the Year in 1961, a six-time All-Star. He won the Major League Batting title in 1972, 426 career home runs, and he had basically a one-to-one -one walk to strikeout ratio. Pretty amazing. 18 years in the Major Leagues, 16 as a Chicago Cub. 
JD, we will talk with Billy a lot about his career and some of the greats uh, he played with and against. But uh, about the first half of our conversation is about what's going on in our world and uh, some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, Billy was born in uh, in the rural South in Alabama. He grew up with segregation. He signed a professional contract at the age of 18, right out of high school, and off he went. And he had to deal with a lot of uh, racism, to tell you the truth, and just institutional racism. Um, and it's just heartbreaking to hear those stories, but they're important stories to hear. And it's obviously a big part of, of his history and his legacy and, and, and many others uh, who played the game in that era. Uh, it's just a, a wonderful conversation with a great man. Everything's good. You know, just protecting myself and protecting the family and making sure everybody come in the house to see Shirley wear a mask. So it's, uh, it's a thing. It's kind of easing up now. I'd be glad when they find a, uh, uh, something, uh, uh, the cutest right. stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will talk some baseball today, but um, after the horrific death of George Floyd, which you mentioned, we've seen yeah. daily protests throughout the country uh, against mm-hmm. police brutality and for equal right. treatment for minorities. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts about what's going on right now in our country? Well, I'm 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 looking at that, and uh, I'm just looking at what happened on this particular time. I think because people had cameras, and people began to have cameras in the last few days, and I think uh, the brutality has been going along a long time, but all of a sudden, you know, people standing around now, you could get the uh, camera and and uh, shoot what's going on. So it's 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 a rough time in uh in in the life of a black person now billy you strike me um as a very optimistic person um do you lose hope do you lose optimism when when you see this and it's gone on for so long and it keeps rearing its ugly head well i i I am i am because of uh all of the uh, protests in the past uh you know you see a lot of uh people protesting but now when you look at the protests you see kids from, I guess, from 18 years old to 25, and black people marching, white people marching, brown people marching. And I think uh, we're at a crossroad now, and I think something's going to happen out of this. I, I really feel that it will because uh, so many people standing behind what's going on. I see it's a funny thing. You know, you see white people with uh, signs above their heads, say Black Lives Matter, which we know, you know, and, and, and this is what's got to happen. Everybody got to get in on this and have conversation about where we go from here. You dealt with a lot uh, of this stuff uh, very specifically, and, and we can get into that here in a second, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about your grandkids and the conversations uh, you're having with them and what they've experienced, I would like to think that they've had it a lot better than you did, but we still obviously have a long way to go. This is true, uh, Lynn. I, I think, uh, you know, when they come over to the house, we sit down and we talk and they know that uh, things happened with me when I first went off to play baseball. And I tell them about the incident, many incidents that happened. But I guess at that time, I looked at the big picture. I wanted to play the game of baseball, and you know when you when you look at uh, what Jackie Robinson went through, I just got a ripple of it. 
many different places I went, and and I was called names. Sure, I was called names. Down in Parker City, when I first went off to play baseball, you talking about a lonely individual. I was the only uh, black person on the baseball team, so I had to travel around, and people had to uh, go in restaurants. I couldn't go in a restaurant to eat. And, uh, fellas, uh, Jim Brewer was a real good friend of mine. He pitched for the Dodgers and he was sure. from Broken Air, Oklahoma. And we got along real well. And he used to go in the restaurant and, uh, when they went in to eat, they would get their food in there. So he would make sure that when he come out, he bring me food on the bus because I couldn't go in the restaurant to eat. Mm. You know, this is a tough, this is a tough one. Um, You've always been yourself since I've known you. Yes, I have. But I'm curious, when you were 18 or 19, did you feel like you had to adapt in certain circumstances and maybe not be yourself all the time? Because, you know, when J.D. and I get on a plane now, just in terms of culturally, right? Uh-huh. You've got uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of Spanish-speaking players, and you hear the the, the music, and um, you know everybody kind of has their own little uh, thing that they're into. Uh-huh. And if there's a moment in time where you're into something and other people don't understand it, and you feel like that could cause problems for you, I'm curious how you dealt with that. Well, you know the the thing is, I was raised up in the South, so I knew where to go, when to go, and uh, as I move up the ladder to play Major League Baseball, play baseball. There were times, you know, you look at it, uh, uh, culturally different guys have they different culture, what they do. You mentioned, you know, the Latin players play, have they uh, culture. And some of the white boys, they be together and they, you know, do things. And, of course, the black guys do their thing. And it's, it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment for white guys, an adjustment for black guys because – a lot of times, uh, individuals play the game of baseball. They haven't been around too many blacks, so they have to make an adjustment too. And uh, it's a it's a it's a constant adjustment for both parties when you're in the sporting world, when you're playing team team sport. Right. But when you when you went to Ponca City, when you first signed out of high school, I mean, you left literally like two days after high school, right? I did. I so did. you're 18 years old, and you go off to play ball, and then you have to deal. And, and you, you know, being from the segregated South, you were aware of uh, of the way some people thought and behaved. But now you're out there as a, as a young man trying to earn a living in, in a world and people are, you know, just treating you so poorly. You know, one of the things, uh, J.D., when I left to go to Ponca City and I was thinking uh, Ponca City is beyond the diction line. I didn't think Oklahoma was segregated when I left home because I was young. And not knowing too much about what's going on out, out in the world. And I remember boarding a bus two and a half days. I'm riding two and a half days. And uh, I was picked up at the, at, the, uh, at the bus station. And I was taken to these uh, individuals' home. It was a private home we were staying at. And at that time, uh, Lou Johnson, uh, Sammy Drake, Guy he live here, Chick Greenwood passed away, and uh, Gilmore, and uh, you know it made it made it kind of easy, you know when I walked in the in the house, uh, you know met these individuals who played with Ponca City. That was my first year, 
1956, right after I finished school. But the second year, when I went to Parker City, I uh, I was the only, as I say, the only black kid on the ball club. So it made it tough traveling around. But uh, it it it, you know, it was tough. But uh, there's there's some adjustments sure you have to make. Did your identity and the fact that you weren't always put in a very comfortable situation actually, in some ways, make you the ball player you turned out to be? I think so. I think so. When I uh, when I started out playing baseball, and I see the uh, I see the prejudice uh, stuff that went on while I was playing baseball, and I began to look at the big picture. I wanted to play the game. And I remember when I was in 19, uh, 1959, I was at uh, uh, San Antonio, Texas. And after playing for a couple of years, I said, I'm tired of this game. I'm tired of this game because of all the things that happened, you know, waiting on the bus. And it happened then, waiting on the bus, driving back from different cities. I had to sit on the bus and wait till people bring me food. J.C. Hartman was my teammate at the time. We had to sit on the bus until people bring food. And uh, I just got tired of it. Grady Hatton was the manager. And uh, I, I asked J.C. when I got back to the hotel, I said, Jay, take me to the airport. Uh, take me to the train station, matter of fact. And uh, J.C. said, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. I'm tired of this stuff, man. Yeah. But uh, he said, I'm not going to take you, man. You serious about going home? I said, yes, I am. He said, you are serious, ain't you? I said, if you don't take me, I'm going to catch a cab. So he said, uh, I'll take you. So I went home and stayed for about seven days. And uh, in the meantime, I was making so much progress in the organization because I'm, I'm hitting over 300 at that time down in San Antonio. And uh, Grady Hatton was the manager. And normally, J.C. and I would ride to park together. And when I didn't come to the park that evening with J.C. and uh, Grady Hatton asked Billy, asked J.C., where was Billy? And uh, J.C. said, he going home. So it was a big thing at that time because I was making so much progress. And John Holland, who was the general manager of the Cubs, he got in touch with Buck O'Neill. And for about, uh, you know, a day and a half, I was home. Uh, doing my thing, fishing, and just enjoying life. And uh, Buck O'Neill used to drive a Fury all the time. So I saw this Fury coming up in the yard, and I said, oh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> so Buck came down, and we talked. We enjoyed life. He took me down to uh, where I used to play baseball. And I stayed home for about a week, so I went back. And Buck convinced me to go back, so I went back into San Antonio. And uh, things began to look up at that time. I I began to enjoy baseball a little bit more. I I had to make some adjustments. So I was looking at the big, big picture at the time. I looked at myself making the progress that I had made, and I said, might not be long. I could play Major League Baseball. So I started looking at the big picture, and it all worked out. You know, sure did. Billy, excuse me, Len, but Billy, you've used the term make adjustments three or four times now. And, and most players, when they talk about making adjustments, it's, you know, to their batting stance or, you know, you know learn a new pitch or whatever. You're talking about, and, and I'm reading between the lines here, but you're talk, the, the adjustments you're talking about making is living in this system that you can't go into the restaurant with your teammates and just at some point going, okay, uh, I'm just going to have to 
live with this. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's this, this you, you must have been seething with anger, but you, you still said, "Okay, I, you know, this is what I got to do to get to where I want to want to be." Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. You know, when you look at the, what I went through and what you look at what Jackie Robinson went through, I guess that's that was a wake up call when he came to the big league, and uh, he had to make some adjustments, and uh, that's what I had to do. You know, as I come in, I, the culture, my culture and the white culture was two different things, and I. And and I had certain places to go, and and I couldn't I couldn't go different places to really enjoy things. So I had to make an adjustment, go somewhere else, go to the uh, uh, black motel, and where I could really have a lot of fun. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about your life and your career, really, you know, paralleling a very important time culturally in our country. You mentioned Jackie. Uh, and and the the big last speech uh, he gave, mm-hmm. he talked about a, a black manager in baseball, and he passed away, I believe, before uh, Frank Robinson was hired uh, to manage uh, the Cleveland Indians. I think of 1968. Yeah. Uh, you were uh, a Chicago Cub at that time, but uh, there was a lot of upheaval uh, in the country. How much did you pay attention to uh, what was going on in the country? Not specifically related to the game of baseball, the Civil Rights Act in, uh, uh, what, 1964, 65? I mean, that whole era. How did you follow that? Well, it's a lot of stuff happened in the 60s. And uh, being from uh, Mobile, Alabama, I remember I didn't move to Chicago until 1966. Therefore, after the baseball season, I would drive back and forth to, to Mobile, my hometown. And I was I would go to Birmingham and Montgomery, and there were National Guards standing on the corners, and to 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 deal with that going home, and all of a sudden you say, you know things are not right, things are not right. I think the bus boycott was going at that time, and later on, uh, you know when when I started playing baseball. Uh, 19, what was that? When, uh, when, 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 when not, we, we, we were having an exhibition game. We were going to play an exhibition game. 68, we, we playing an exhibition game over in uh, Lafayette, Indiana. And I remember coming back from uh, spring training. And as I walked in the hotel, unpacking my bag, and it came over the, uh, television that uh, Martin Luther King had passed away. So it really hurt it because here's a guy, you know, uh, preaching nonviolence, nonviolence, trying to uh, trying to correct the country that uh, everybody was, uh, you know, doing their own thing. And he tried to correct the country and he was killed. And uh, it was it was tough at that time. And, and uh, you know, you think about those things. You think about those things. Now, in a situation like this, uh, here's a kid that, uh, you know, was in Minnesota. And it was said that uh, a $20 bill, he walked in. It was supposed to be a, a counterfeit $20 bill. And all of a sudden, you know, he dies on the knee of an individual who has been on the police force 18 years. And 17 years, he'd been disciplined. And we don't find out this particular thing, how this person 
is still being a policeman. And those are the kind of things you think about. No question. Um, I want to ask you about your relationship with Shirley. And um, I, I know she's had a real tough time here. Uh, how long have you been married? We've been married uh, 60 years. Wow. wow. Congratulations. Past February the 25th. We Amazing. were married 60 years. Amazing. And I remember when I went to uh, AAA to play baseball. That's when we got married. Well, let's bring her into this conversation because I'm sure uh, you uh, and Shirley had a lot of these talks mm -hmm. about what was going on in the world at that time. And, and I have no doubt that she counseled you through some of these tough times. Well, she did. She did. And uh, she, she saw me playing in uh, uh, Houston. And I remember Lou Johnson and I, we made it to AAA. Lou Johnson's wife was there. We were staying at the uh, Mingo Motel in uh, Houston, Texas. We were staying on Sunnyside. And, uh, Jay, you, you probably know where Sunnyside is in Houston. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, Shirley and Lou Johnson's wife, they couldn't sit in the stands with, with uh, other wives. So they were sitting down the first baseline and, uh, behind some chicken wire. And so that night after the game, we started discussing, you know, what it was like to uh, uh, to be, you know, the individuals to sit there and watch the game and see everybody else having fun. And we had to do that. And there were times in Chicago, you know, if I go in a place, uh, they look at me and they don't know who I am until I got established. They didn't know who I am or were. But all of a sudden, they find out this is Billy William play with the Cubs. And I could see the difference how I was approached at the time when I was just a, 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 a black person. The next time, they know that I played baseball for the Cubs. So it was a different in that era. So the situation where your, your, your wives had to sit in a different part of the stadium, was that just the stadium itself was segregated, like white people sat over here and black people sat over here? This is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah. We, we couldn't sit. Shirley and them couldn't sit with the white wives. They had to sit in a little section that was uh, that was made for, for Shirley and, and Lou Johnson's wife because they were only two black uh, individuals, on, wives on the baseball team. And so they had to sit down to uh, sit down the, the and, right. And, and I'm assuming it would, it would have been a pretty courageous act for one of the white wives to go over and join your wives. They were probably, even if they were inclined to do so, they were probably afraid of the pushback they would get from you know stadium officials or whomever. Well, it, that, 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 that was the case. That was the case. You know, they, they were separated and uh, they stayed separated. They couldn't go over there. It's just like, uh, you know, when we were in uh, when we were in Arizona, and it was a tough time out there trying to get a place to live. And I I think when you walk around and you see places, you see signs saying, you know, for rent. So you walk up and try to get a uh, a place to live in Mesa, Arizona, and all of a sudden the the the, the saying was that we will rent you this place. We will rent you this place. But I don't know how the tenants will accept it, the other tenants in the, in the thing. And, of course, this is kind of like what happened when we were sitting in the stands 
in the, at the Houston Stadium. That's just heartbreaking. Um, Billy, thank you for opening up on on these often difficult topics. And uh, you know, as I said, I, I think we are we have made some progress, but we have a long, long way to go. Yeah, we do. We have a long way to go, but I think uh, I think we're at the crossroad now. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened the other day with uh, not the other day that were three or four people killed the other day, black people killed the other day. But I think one of the things that happened and now this has been going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, this this kind of uh, prejudice has been going along for a long time when people getting shot when people getting killed and all of a sudden the police report is different. What happened? Uh, you know, he, he was aggressive. But now, with the cell phones, you know, everybody got a cell phone now. Yeah. And I think this is what happened in the last couple of days, last week, and happened in the last year. And I think you'll begin to see this kind of thing happening now. You can't do anything wrong now and get by. Uh, you got to do the right thing. You got to treat people as they are. You know, you got to accept people. Yep. And uh, this is the thing we got to do. And I think this is uh, the turning point happened in the last, I guess, three weeks. When I see, as I said, when I see white people, black people, brown people, young people, old people walking, marching, and trying to, 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 to you know, get the country at its best. Because as I would travel around, as I would travel around, and I see police cars, I see police cars. And on those police cars, I remember seeing serve and protect, serve and protect. But that has gone out the window from time to time. That's what they're there for, to serve and protect. And because of the camera, they begin to do that now. Because well, they can't well do said. wrong and get by. Yep. One, one last question on, on this particular topic, Billy. Um, you were speaking of, of the wives being separated uh, during the game and J.D. mentioning that the, the courage it would have taken for uh, one of the wives of, of the white ball player to come over. Um, and if there's no specific person that stands out, that's fine. But was there a teammate or someone along the way, a white teammate of yours, who you thought showed a lot of courage and specifically and very visibly tried to break that tension and make sure that you knew that you were his teammate, just like everybody else. I think one of the guys I mentioned his name to start with <clears throat> was Jim Brewer. He was from okay. uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Yep. And uh, Jim Brewer and I got along real well uh, when we were playing uh, class D league down in Parker City, Oklahoma. And then eventually he played with the Cubs. And uh, eventually he went to Dodgers. So when we would go to Los Angeles, he would pick me up and we'll go fishing when we was in Los Angeles. And when we, when he played here, we go to Houston. We would go fishing in Houston. We would go to Gaveston. So I thought he was pretty close. He was a guy that I could trust. I could, you know, talk to. And uh, I enjoyed being with him. Matter of fact, his uh, 
his wife made mention of when I was playing in Ponca City, and as an article came out, and she talked about Jim Brewer and myself, how we got along and how we enjoyed each other, because an incident happened down in uh, down in Ponca City when I was playing down there, and things happened, and uh, she said Lou was a real good friend of mine, and and uh, we got along real well. Great stuff from John Lester, Bob Odenkirk, and in particular, uh, Billy Williams. Uh, we got into some pretty deep and, and heavy stuff with Billy. So so let's end on a, on a lighter note with Billy. I guess just from a baseball perspective, uh, the one thing I, I miss is being around the batting cage during BP. And whenever Billy is there, I just love listening to him break down a hitter's swing. He, he knows as much about mechanics and what a good major league swing is as anybody. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 and he's such a smart guy, and, and um, just the way he d- delivers a message is, is really interesting. You know, two, three years ago at the, at the Cubs convention, uh, I went up to the Cubs suite, and I settled in next to Billy and Bill Madlock, and I just started pumping questions at them about hitting, but mostly about their days playing, what pitchers were tough, what pitchers they feasted on. And I was like a 12-year-old kid, man. I was, I was like talking to, you know, talking uh, baseball cards. Just, I was like, hey, tell me about Jerry Kuzman. Tell me about Carlton. How'd you hit this guy? And they were just, they were all in, man. They had great stories. Uh, he, he, he's a treasure. All right, anything gnawing at you for your admission this week? I, I actually feel... Like everything's kind of kind of kosher right now. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm turning my weekly concession into more of a rant, uh, and this is a, this is kind of a confession slash rant. I was at the grocery store today, and I bought some produce, and I'm that guy now that when I do the self checkout thing, you got to read the numbers on the tomato to punch them into the thing. I can't see them. Can you please make the numbers bigger? And there's like people waiting in line behind me, and I'm taking my glasses off and I'm squinting. So that's part on me. But come on, grocery people, make the numbers on the tomatoes bigger. That's all I got. Great note to end on. Special thanks, Max Berman, Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Oboykowicz, Shane McGuire, Adam Sobel. For Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. And we will talk to you next week on Open Concessions, presented by Toyota. Toyota.